Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. We're going to take a look at the letter written by James. This letter is named after the author rather than the community to which he is writing because he's going to write to all believers, not just to one community. And he's not going to write to reveal or explain theological truths, but how to apply those and to encourage the believers in keeping them. Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation, did not have a high regard for this letter. He called it an epistle of straw. John Wesley, however, said that the book of James is a remedy against the temptation to leave off good works as a way to increase our faith. In other words, we have to put actions with what we believe. Actions speak louder than words. Faith without works is the grand pest of Christianity, Wesley said. Um, He said, to think that you can have faith without actions that confirm it is wisdom from beneath, or it's carnal wisdom. It's not the wisdom of God. And it is earthly, sensual, and devilish. He thought it would be one of the great failures of Christians if we ever came to, to the idea, to the conclusion that we could believe something without having to apply it in our lives. I fear that much of Christianity today has gotten to that place. We segment what we believe and the fact that we belong to Christ from the way we behave at least in some of the areas of our life. Now, the name of the book is James, um, and that's the English translation of this individual's name. In the Greek, it would be Iacobus, I-A-K-A-B-O-S. And that's a translation from the Hebrew Yaakov, um, Y-A-A-K-O-V, which also gets translated Jacob. So it's interesting to me that... um, The name of the person is actually Jacob, and there are a lot of famous Jacobs in the Bible. There are two among the 12 disciples um, under the name James, of course. This letter, however, is from a particular James or Jacob, one who is a half-brother of Jesus himself, one of the children that Mary and Joseph have after Jesus is born. He did not come to be a follower during the lifetime of Jesus. It happened after Jesus' resurrection. And you can find more of his story in Acts chapters 12 and 15 and Galatians 1 and 2. As uh, Peter became the first leader of the Jerusalem church, but as he began to travel to, to establish other Christian communities and to go back and help put out fires and encourage the believers, he kind of became a, a not just a traveling evangelist, but an advisor and a consultant. Then James stepped in to give leadership to the mother church, to that original community of believers there in Jerusalem. That community fell on hard times during the 20 years that James was their leader. There were famines, uh, one strong famine in particular, which left many of them in poverty. 
The Jewish leaders were strongly opposing them and were um, trying to get rid of them and silence them. But James, as their leader, was firm and faithful. He was a peacemaker. He led with wisdom and with great courage right up until the time he was murdered for his faith. This book becomes his legacy. We can see strong influences from the Sermon on the Mount and from the book of Proverbs and the wisdom of that book. This letter, or this book, is full of short wisdom speeches, heavy on the metaphors and easy to memorize the one-liners that he gives. I think that's intentional. Um, He could give them one-liners that they could memorize and remember. The body of teaching happens in chapters 2 through 5, and in those chapters there are actually 12 short teachings that call God's people to wholehearted devotion to the way of Jesus. Each teaching could stand alone and may have been lessons that James has been giving to the believers as he travels um, and as he helps establish communities. Each of those teachings ends with one of those catchy one-liners. And it may have been that these were individual lessons, but we don't believe that someone else compiled them. We believe James actually compiled them as he wrote this letter. He brought all of his ideas together because they all feel very united through some key repeated words and themes. Um, Chapter 1 is the introduction, gives us a summary to the whole book, and gives us all the key words and themes that we're going to see in the rest of the book. He uses the word perfect seven times, and perfect means complete, and in this case, James is emphasizing the idea of being whole. He wants believers to be perfect. He wants them to have a wholeness, which is evidenced by a completely integrated life where their actions are always consistent with the teachings of Jesus. It doesn't matter who they're around or where they are in life. They are the same person all the time, and that person is entirely consistent with how Jesus would have them live. Until the 20th century, the book of James kind of got a benign disregard from scholars. There were some who have actively shunned this book because it sounds like it's advocating faithfulness to the Torah and to observing, adding adding good works to our faith. The letter probably dates to around AD 69, which was when James was martyred. So this is probably at the end of his life. He may see that coming, or he may have decided um, that it was time for him to put something down in writing. It is considered New Testament wisdom literature in the same category as Old Testament would be um, Proverbs and Song of Solomon that are wisdom literature. Okay, so let's jump into chapter 1. He writes this letter to all believers, the called people of God, the followers of Jesus. Um, He calls them the people in dispersion. They are redeemed. They are restored to a right relationship with God, but they are not in their promised land. They are still in exile. They are still living among non-believers who are in control of the world around them. Um, And so those non-believers would be people who don't follow God's way. So the world is not working the way God wants it to. We find ourselves in the midst of that. How then do do we live? In verses 2 through 18, he gives us two ways of responding to the difficulties that we find ourselves in. We can respond with rejoicing, enduring, and considering ourselves to be lacking in nothing. We have all we need from God 
or we can respond by doubting and being double-minded, going back and forth, not having confidence in God, wondering and doubting. For the former, the tr- these the circumstances we find ourselves in become trials that help to mature us. If we view them in the latter way, then everything becomes a temptation that can lead to death or lead to pulling us away from Christ and having us renounce and go back on our faith. The difference is going to be how our hearts are formed around God. James calls that wisdom. For your heart to be formed around God, to see the world as God sees it, to see what's happening in your life from the vantage point of God and be able to respond in that way is wisdom. Verses 19 through 27, the way that we form our hearts around God is to obey, to act as God would have us act, to be formed by God rather than being formed by the world. Our behaving helps us to remember who we are, that we are people living under the law of freedom, but we are, it is freedom not to sin, but freedom from sin. It is freedom from the way of the world, freedom to live in God's way. Following Christ isn't just about believing. It is about believing, but not just the believing. Our actions flow from that belief. This is what makes many people uncomfortable that we're saying you're not saved by grace alone through faith. That is how you're saved. You can't do anything to save yourself. You have to simply accept that offer of forgiveness and life through Jesus Christ. But then because of that, we respond in gratitude. We respond because of that relationship to living like we have that relationship. I often compare it to a marriage. Um, I am faithful to Joseph because we are in a marriage together. We're committed. My actions need to act like I'm in that relationship. I didn't do that to get him to marry me or to make him deserve to marry me. Um, we fell in love. We decided to spend our lives together. But now I live as a married woman. When we come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we should live as people who are in that relationship. Um, he talks about the attitudes and the behaviors that he focuses on are patience, controlling our anger, controlling our angry feelings, um, controlling our tongue, and being kind. He then goes on to say that pure religion, religion that is undefiled by the world, is to care for the widow and the orphan, which will be to care for those who are the most vulnerable, and to stay, excuse me, and to stay untainted by the world. So we care for the vulnerable among us, and we keep ourselves from being vulnerable as well by exposing ourselves to sin and being pulled away in that way. Chapter 2, in verses 1 through 13, he talks about favoritism. A system of favor and patronage was important to that culture. Um, And so he's making the point that there's a different cultural standard among Christians. This is very often difficult for people when they come into the church, that your status, your power, your title, your money, none of those things are supposed to matter in the church. What matters is that we're all following Jesus together and that the Holy Spirit then distributes spiritual gifts that help us do the work of the church. And the Holy Spirit does that irrespective of our status, our socioeconomic group, or how many titles that we wear. 
Um, we don't look for what people can do for us. That's not what church, that's not what being part of uh, the church and of the body of Christ is about. We see everyone as valuable, and our practices of hospitality are changed by our faith. Hospitality extends to everyone now, not just those in our particular social circle and not just those who can return the favor, which was the cultural mode of the time. In his mind, favoritism is prejudging someone based on their status or appearance. Um, When we do that, we artificially impute maturity to those who are rich, and we tend to neglect the poor as though they are lacking in something that would allow God to bless them. We, however, need to judge by God's standards and not those of the world. We don't show partiality. And if you read carefully, James is making the point that showing partiality is failing to love our neighbor. Loving our neighbor as ourself means we don't show favoritism in the church. Verses 14 through 26, he talks about genuine faith, and he says, faith without works is dead. He mentions that um, the confession that God is one, that's the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, the great confession of the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one there. Um, And he says, well, yeah, you can believe that, but how will people know? that you believe these great spiritual truths if they aren't indicated in your life. That's how Abraham's faith was seen, was in what he did. He trusted God. He followed God. He did what God told him to do. Um, We know that Abraham had great faith because of what he did. People can't crawl in your head and figure that out. Actions speak louder than words. Um, In verse 24 I want to point out to you that not all streams of Christianity believe in faith alone. That is a Protestant Reformation idea. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe in faith alone. They believe faith and works are required in order to be justified. Um, We, however, would say that we don't earn our faith. We respond to grace with faith-filled actions. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, talk about the tongue. Um, This is a powerful section of Scripture about our words, and our words have power. We all probably grew up hearing the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Um, Now, that makes a great retort to someone who's being ugly to you on the playground, but the truth is words hurt, and I believe that words can hurt even more than physical Um, If you get a physical beating, the bruise will heal long before the wound that is left by a word that is spoken to us and hurts us. We tend to internalize that and carry that with us. Our words can be persuasive. They are persuasive. The things we say matter. So we can use those words to lead people astray, or we can use words to convince people of doing what is right. Um, He says very clearly that teachers are responsible for what they teach. When we take on the role of telling others what we believe God is saying or what we should do and how we should act, we need to be very careful about that. Um, As I have grown as a Christian, I find myself becoming more and more humble about how right I am and whether I am um, that I have it all figured out because I don't believe I do. We learn to walk humbly 
with God and be careful of what we are teaching. You will rarely ever hear me say, we should always, we should never. Um, I will say things like, we should always listen to the Holy Spirit. We should never refuse to yield to God. But teachers have a responsibility for what it is that they say and what they teach. And we need to control our tongue. And if we control our tongue, we can control our life. Too many people burn their whole world down by the words that they utter rashly or in anger or without thought. Our inner character matters. This was what Wesley called tempers, like our the way we handle ourselves, our inner character that comes out in what we do. Um, and our inner character becomes on display in our daily practices. How we walk through our life shows who we are. Verses 13 through 18 contrast two different kinds of wisdom. Worldly wisdom makes us think that we are better than others, and it creates a desire to be as good or as accomplished as others. So worldly wisdom puts us in an achievement and competitive state. But envy and selfish ambition can cause us to do a lot of things in order to, to achieve the goal that we want. That desire to get ahead, to be accomplished, to be seen as successful by wanting to be as successful as someone else. Well, why do they deserve that? I should get that. I'm going to get that. That can lead us to compromising our faith and principles in an effort to get it. On the other hand, heavenly wisdom purifies our hearts and our minds. Um, when we understand our value, who we are in God, and who we are to God, then there's no striving and no competing with others. We want to be the best of who we can be, but it's okay if someone can still run faster or ride their bicycle farther or be a better speaker or has gotten another promotion. I'm going to be the very best that I can be, and that will be enough for God, and it will be enough for me. Peace, gentleness with others, a willingness to yield what we want and what we think to others, to be merciful. All of those things that he mentions here sound like the fruit of the Spirit to me, like Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So Paul wasn't the only one who picked up on that from the teachings of Jesus. That is the first three chapters of the book of James. I like the book of James quite a bit. I'm with Wesley on the fact that I think we have had quite enough of people leaving off with good works as a way of maturing, as of showing our faith. I think it's one of the reasons that the world gets a little down on us sometimes is that um, they see Christians as hypocritical because our actions don't match our words and our claims. And James here, the half-brother of Jesus who grew up, who would have seen Jesus as his big brother and seen him leave the family to go do his ministry, could not accept that he was the Messiah until after his crucifixion and resurrection, but then became a wholehearted follower. And so for me, this becomes an incredible book. The person, a person who grew up watching Jesus firsthand This is what he says that we should do and be if we're to follow Jesus. Carries a lot of weight with me. We will um, pick up and do chapters four and five when they come up in our reading.